The Stanley Cup final matchup is set. Plus, the Canucks add another player to the organization. It is the Canucks Hour here on Sportsnet 650, your home of the Canucks. I'm Jamie Dodd, joined by my co-host, as always, Canucks insider Thomas Trance, who also covers the team at the Athletic Canucks Hour. Brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. Visit avenuemachinery.ca. Drancer, music to your ears, I know, that we'll have two bona fide, confirmed, indisputable, elite teams meeting in this year's Stanley Cup Final. Anything can't happen. It's the (laughs) back-to-back champs. It's the back-to-back champs against the third, or sorry, the best point percentage team of the last three years. Yeah. Let's go. Like, this is, you know what? This is great. It's great that we're getting a matchup of this caliber. It's a fascinating contrast of styles. I still haven't made my cup final pick, and I'm agonizing over it, and I want to agonize over it in real time sure. with our listeners yeah. over the next two days, and then on Wednesday I'll make my pick. I'm going to I'm gonna take as much time as I can, like when I'm filling out the awards ballot. Hopefully I do better than uh, putting Jared Spurgeon on top of my, on my ballot, only for him to try and hack off an opponent's leg 30 minutes later. One of the true... One of the true, like, worst moments of my voting career. Um, so, what, what, I'm leaning Tampa. I'm gonna be honest with you, I'm leaning Tampa Bay. And I know it's wild to think of anybody stopping that Colorado Avalanche team mm-hmm. just with the way they're playing and with their pace. They, they have a huge speed advantage over the Tampa Bay Lightning. Like, the Maple Leafs had a decisive speed advantage over the Tampa Bay Lightning. The Lightning managed to counteract it, but they got outscored in the series, right? They were, down in the third period of game six, they needed overtime. Matthews missed a tip narrowly, and then they had a ridiculous disallowed goal in the game seven and one by one goal. Yeah. I mean, the margins there were super thin, and I don't think the, like, the Maple Leafs are in the, a similar mold as the Colorado Avalanche, but the Colorado Avalanche are, are a little bit better. Yeah. And yet, you look at how how hard an opponent the Leafs were for, for the Tampa Bay Lightning, um, you know, and then you factor in Braden Point's injury. The fact that the the Colorado have, uh, the, sorry, the Tampa Bay Lightning have just played a million games. It's tempting to look at all of that and take Colorado, but I look through what Colorado's done in this playoffs, right? And I look through Nashville. Meh. Yep. St. Louis. They were pretty good, but pretty meh. And then the Edmonton Oilers, who, you know, were were a non-elite team. And one one thing none of those teams do at a very high level, right? Like a very high level. In addition to none of those three teams being elite, unlike the Tampa Bay Lightning who have defeated two elite teams, plus Shesterkin, who's yes. having the best season we've ever seen a goaltender have, none of those teams are elite at attacking the breakout. What, and in particular, at forcing turnovers and being disruptive on with their forechecks. And I think that a Colorado team, and I think this was true with or without Sam Girard, but I think Sam Girard's absence amplifies it. I think that Colorado is vulnerable to a team that forechecks at a very high level. Like, I thought Calgary was the only team in the West that could beat them because Calgary was the only team in the West that matched that description. But, like, I thought Carolina was going to be a tough matchup for the Lightning if they'd won game seven against the Rangers because that's one of the best four-checking teams in hockey. Um, so, 
sorry, uh, and I mean Colorado. Carolina would have been a nightmare matchup for Colorado. Colorado. Excuse me. So, I think the Lightning. Now, granted, they've played a more controlled forecheck. Right, they're playing a one-three-one, and they've done it for most of the playoffs because they've mostly bumped into faster opponents, and this is their fastest opponent yet. I do think that Tampa is going to be able to attack the base of the Colorado breakout particularly when Taves and McCarr aren't on the ice with extreme effectiveness. And and I wonder if that's going to be the difference in the series. When you combine that edge, which I think will sort of smooth the edges of Colorado's, you know, speed advantage, when you combine that with Tampa Bay's goaltending edge, you know, I, I wonder if that's going to be enough for them to, to win in seven. I, I, I have a really hard time picking against Tampa Bay at this point, but... Again, I'm not making this pick. This is just where I'm leaning and how I'm thinking about the series. And I think the Tampa forecheck, particularly in the non-Makar Taves minutes, I think that's going to be a huge story to watch for. I think the matchup's going to come down to it. And I'm just trying to decide whether or not I think it's going to be decisive enough to make Tampa in seven my pick. Because, you know, there's no way I'm picking Tampa in any less than seven. But I may pick them in seven. I think that's where I'm leaning at the moment. We'll see. So I f- very foolishly made the mistake of uh, I picked Tampa in round one and they rewarded me, as you said, by the thinnest of margins against the Leafs. I very foolishly picked against them in round two against the Florida Panthers and they made me look like an idiot by sweeping the Florida Panthers. And and after that, I kind of said, I'm not making that mistake again. And I, I think I'm going yeah. to stick to that. We'll take our time here, as you said, and make our official picks. Well, it's fun to think Wednesday. our way through it. Yeah, it is. But it's just it's. And I think especially with Tampa, if they hadn't done it against those kind of speed skill teams earlier in the playoffs, you might be a little even more worried about Colorado than you already are. But they have done it. Now, I'm not saying, oh, well, and, and therefore it's going to be easy for them to take on the Avalanche. No, there's nothing easy about like taking on no, the Avalanche. Not none whatsoever. But they have not just the template from winning the last two Stanley Cups, but they have like in this playoffs a certain template of, okay, we've played teams like this, this is a better version of them, but we've played teams like this and found a way to get it done. I think the Braden Point health situation is going to be really, really important uh, for Tampa Bay. I think they need him back in the lineup. Obviously, the goaltending discrepancy is significant. I'm really curious to see how the special teams battle plays out uh, in this one as well. I think that could be a pretty major factor, but Man, first of all, I'm just incredibly excited to watch this one play out. I think it could be an absolute blast. I liked what uh, Jeff Merrick had to say off the top of his show. He referred to it like a title unification belt in in boxing, right? Where there's just two absolute apex guys. Big wrestling guy, Jeff Merrick, yes. with the, with the <laughs> smart yeah. metaphor there. Yeah, no, he's right. That's right. That's such yeah. a good way of looking at it. Um, and I'm excited for the weigh-in this week. We'll we'll cover the weigh-in <laughs> uh, with, um, you know, with, with appropriate gravity. And, and look, here's the last thing. I mean... We're going into this very interesting draft class for defensemen, and this is you know top of mind for me because the Canucks are picking 15th, and there's a variety of the, those players that could be available to them. And I really do think materially you could see guys like Denton Matejchuk and Kevin Korchinski. And for me, Matejchuk has emerged as the guy I think the Canucks should take 15th. I don't think they're going to, but I think he's the guy they should take. I... I, I worry that he's the next guy that we're all going to be like it's not even hindsight he was the pick and he's a star for another team taking two picks after the Canucks pick someone else the only thing I think might frustrate that is that I'm starting to sense a little bit of momentum for him going ahead of the Canucks right yeah. so that so that they might not even get a chance to pass on him yeah <laughs> although although Korchinski right Korchinski yeah. particularly with what Seattle's doing in the uh dub playoffs right now I think is 
you know, both of those guys are going to go, in my, my opinion, in the top 20. But I think I, my sense is Korchinski's got a little bit more momentum and the playoffs, the playoff run is helping him a fair bit. But both guys could benefit a ton if Colorado wins this cup. You know, I, I, and I know it's silly, but I legitimately think you could see both guys jump a pick or two just based off of, you know, addressing the concerns. If Colorado wins the cup, you know, people are going to be like, okay, well, where do we find our Devin Taves, mm-hmm. right? If Tampa Bay wins the cup, everyone's going to be like, well, is that, are those guys big enough to win when it matters? Right? I mean, that's just, that's just human nature in a copycat league. Uh, so I do think that this series has ramifications in terms of what teams are going to do this offseason that are pretty fascinating. Like, you know who's the biggest uh, biggest beneficiary of a Tampa Bay Lightning three-peat? Nikita Zadorov, right? Unrestricted free agent, massive dude. People are going to be like, okay, well, we, we're going to need something like that. We're going to need something like that. Colorado wins. Um, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to say Troy Stetcher, but players of that ilk are going to be guys who may, who maybe benefit a bit, maybe earn an extra couple hundred K on their next deals. Uh, if we're looking at the draft, Owen Pickering could be a guy on the Tampa Bay side as well. You know, big, 100%. toolsy uh, defenseman from the WHL. Yeah. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in Vancouver online uh, at DunbarLumber.com. Uh, Rager actually just texted in as we got into that. Hey, since this is a copycat league, what are the things that people would copy from either one of the two finalists should they win? And then immediately followed up with, uh, oh, crap, sorry, you just addressed this, but get your thoughts in 650-650. And I did want to just, before we move on, because uh, speaking of uh, defensemen taken in the first round, the Canucks signed one uh, just earlier today, and we'll talk about that in just a <laughs> that, second. Yeah, they're way too much hype. Yes. Way too much oh, hype yeah. for Philip Johansson, but, but sure. Um you know, we I have kind of been looking at this as this great stylistic clash, right, between like the ultimate speed, modern style of Colorado and Tampa, which certainly doesn't lack for offensive skill, as we all know, but has really built their identity over these last few seasons around also being able to, you know, muck it up, slow things down, play whatever style they need to do. In just your sense of talking to people around the league, Dranther, is that kind of framing just like a dumb sports radio guy, you know, narrative, look, looking for, okay, hey, we got to hype something up in this Stanley Cup final, so this is what we'll choose? Or do you think there's actually something to that from the perspective of people in the league, right? That they are seeing it in those terms as well. In, in terms of the skill? Yeah. The- well, I don't think so, because Tampa Bay is a skilled team, right? Tampa Bay is a skilled team that, you know, the, I, for me, the big stylistic difference is size on the back end. That, to me, is the big one. Like, Makar... Taves, Gerard when he's in, yeah. even Bowen Byram. I mean, we're talking about sub six two, uh, in some cases sub six foot uh, defenders. You know, none of those guys are wilting violets, but it's a huge discrepancy between that yeah. and Hedman, Cernak, McDonough. you know, McDonough, and even Sergeyev, who's like six two six three, right? So, yeah. well, even like Bogosian, you know, in the in- yeah, but but every team has a Manson or yeah. a Bogosian or or Jan Ruda or a or an Eric Johnson. You know what I'm saying? Like those guys for me are peripheral. In terms of the top four defensemen on both teams, you've got a lot of beef and and a lot less beef, a lot more puck moving ability, a lot more speed, a lot more escapability with their feet. So for me, that's the biggest stylistic clash that you're looking at with both of these two teams. And I think that's where, you know, uh, that's where I think the league is sort of focused on the difference. I don't think the Tampa Bay Lightning are seen, though, as being a template that you try and, like, if, first of all, if you want to mimic Tampa Bay, get the best player in two consecutive yeah. drafts and then do everything right for 12 years. Okay. You know, 
good luck, right? But also, but also be extremely patient, right? I mean, I talked about the Colorado lesson. For me, almost the lessons of both teams sort of draw underlines about paths not taken by Canucks, by the Canucks franchise in recent years. And and the two that I'm thinking in particular, like with with Tampa Bay, you make the Stanley Cup, uh, sorry, you make the Eastern Conference Final Game 7 in 2011 in sort of the first iteration of that Stamkos-Hedman team under Guy Boucher, and or Guy Boucher, excuse me. And then the next year you miss the playoffs. And I actually think you miss the playoffs two of the next three. So they miss the playoffs two of the next three. They take a massive step back. Steve Eiserman remains firmly in charge, just sort of slowly keeps adding to the lineup, right? They they nail a bunch of late-round picks. Uh, they do change coaches at one point, bring up uh, John Cooper, who you know won the Calder Cup in the, in the American League, mm-hmm. and who we were all talking about as this great coaching prospect at the time. I remember writing articles pushing him as someone the Canucks should consider after they fired Alain Vigneault. And, but, uh, but aside from that, the thing that sort of, typifies Tampa Bay's reign for me anyway is the amount of stability that that club had throughout this sort of and I I saw Steve Simmons sort of reference this but he was talking about how long the core has been together like nine seasons for Kucherov uh, 11 for Hedman and on and on for me it's more about the management side continuity you know you you look at Iserman getting the long leash to take the step back that they did between 2012 and 2014 uh, 2015 or is it 2016 that they make the play, uh, the cup final? 2015. 2015. Yeah. So they arrive with that triplets line. They're in the cup final right away. Huge success. Stamkos misses that narrow one, that sitter uh, in game six. They lose to the Chicago Blackhawks. And then the next th- three, four years, they're really a model team. They're really the best team in hockey and yet constant playoff frustration. And, and let's just recap how thorough this frustration was. Um, after that cup final appearance, they make it to the Eastern Conference final twice and take a 3-1 lead, one game away from advancing to another cup final, and they lose both of those series to teams that go on to win the cup. It happened to them against Pittsburgh, happened to them against the Washington Capitals. They missed the playoffs in 2017. They put together one of the greatest teams we've ever seen in the regular season, only to get swept in the um, in the first round. Now, you talk to a in this market all the time. We're all engaged with in this market. How would we react if a team like that made the cup final in 2015, then makes it to the Eastern conference final and blows a three, one mm-hmm, lead, mm-hmm. then misses the playoffs, then makes it to the Eastern conference final and blows a three, uh, three, one lead and then gets swept in the first round on the heels of a historic regular season. Like what would our conversations be like going into that summer of 2019? The pressure to, Blow it up would be overwhelming. Overwhelming. And you, there's the famous uh, tweet that the Tampa Bay Lightning account posted after losing the Columbus Blue Jackets. Absolutely. Right? Like, there's yeah. no words right now, yada, yada, yeah, yada. Yeah. The whole apology spiel. And it's a fascinating time capsule now because you can go back and look at it. And, you know, even in Tampa Bay, the hardcore fans who are there to engage with that tweet are saying, basically, these guys are a bunch of losers who will never win. Right? Like, that's the tenor of, of the response. And now that's in a very emotional moment and all of that. But... Even in Tampa Bay, right, not the, nearly the same type of hockey market like Vancouver is, there was still that line of thought. I mean, we we see it play out with the with the Maple Leafs every year now, right? The same thing. And it would have been absolutely overwhelming, the pressure to just do something. At the very least, fire the coach if you're not going to explore uh, blowing up the actual core pieces. So let's rewind now to, to Vancouver. 2011, this Vancouver Canucks team makes it to the cup final and loses in heartbreaking fashion in Game 7. The next year... 
they are the President's Trophy winners, and they're out in five to the LA Kings in a, in a series marred by Daniel Sedin's injury. The next year, they're swept in the playoffs, and, and finally, Ali and Vigneault is fired. And the next year, they miss the playoffs, and management is is completely cleaned out. Right? The Would the Tampa Bay Lightning have been like, okay, things are still working here. We need to reset here. We need to get younger. The core is clearly over the hill, but we need to have a plan to get back to the top, and it's going to take some time. W- would they have been like okay but manage our, our, our overall thrust here is working let's let's see where this goes or would they have changed gears the way the Canucks did I mean you know the Gillis regime missed the playoffs one time yeah in eight years and they were gone out and that's a pattern the, that until the Jim Benning era was pretty consistent looking back at other previous regimes in Canucks history as well for me the Tampa model is you find people who work you get out of their way and you give them time to get it right if you believe in the vision and so to me, the the Canucks bit of history that's underlined by Tampa's successes that that decision in 2014 when the fans sort of turned on on management and and chanted to fire Gillis, management quickly obliged, uh, changed gears entirely, and that to me is the path not taken, illuminated uh, by the Lightning success, and and you know that I think sort of poses some really tough questions about the layer of decision-making above hockey management, hockey operations leadership with this organization and whether or not they can mimic Jeb Vinnick's success in Tampa. As for Colorado, and I went over this the other day, for me it's the Linden example, Yeah, right? Joe Sackett got the opportunity to fail and the patience to learn from it and change direction. And Linden had the opportunity to fail and then it was over. And he didn't get the space to figure it out. Uh, would he have? I'm not sure, but I think when you look at, you know, what came after 2016, 2017, 2018, when you look at the different approach to signing players uh, in 2017 in particular, the 2017 draft, um, you know, the way that various people were empowered by the organization and then quickly departed it, um, you know, I do think that there's reason to believe that what Lyndon was concocting would have been a far better than his first act. I think Lyndon's second act would have been very interesting to, to see had it had an opportunity to ride. Of course, it didn't. The club decided to accelerate their rebuild. And so the Avalanche and the Tampa Bay Lightning are in cup finals, and the Canucks are kind of nowhere. And the one sort of positive that I want to put on this, lest, lest people cast me as Dr. Doom yet again in the middle of June, is I do like a lot of where the Canucks are positioned. We haven't seen a lot of movement yet, but I do like some of the hires and the way that the Canucks have dreamed up this front office I think there's going to be an opportunity to modernize this organization relatively rapidly and I think there's a chance to do some pretty interesting things to get things back on track this summer but it's going to be a heavy lift um, so while while I'm certainly extending uh, my patience to new Canucks management as they try and clean up this mess um, you know I, I also think the success of both the lightning and the and the avalanche for me shines a spotlight on moments where like forks in the road, turning points that the Canucks franchise, you know, sort of whiffed on, sort of were either too impatient or actually, in fact, too impatient yeah. at two critical moments where perhaps in a, you know, everything everywhere all at once metaverse, a Doctor Strange metaverse, GM Doctor Strange, uh, things could have been wildly different. Uh, 650-650 is the Dunbar Lumber text line. This one comes in, and, and I think it's a fair point, although I think I, I don't think you're saying it's a direct comparison, but he says a big difference between the Canucks of 2013 and Tampa Bay uh, before uh, in Tampa before they had their success. The Canucks were at the end of their run. Their stars were getting older. Tampa Bay had all their young stars hitting their stride and were just peaking. 
that that it's a different. They're on different points of the timeline. There's no doubt about that. Well, they, they are, but the initial step back after making the Eastern Conference Final in 2011, then sees sure. the Tampa Bay Lightning buy out Vincent LeCavalier. It sees them move Dan Boyle and, uh, sorry, Dan Boyle was already gone, excuse me, but it sees them uh, trade Martin St. Louis. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you're, yes, but also the, the Lightning were in a stage of transition too. You know, uh, it's just that they were a little bit further ahead because they it, it's it's almost as if you'd had Pedersen and Hughes coming in right at a time when the twins were still 80 point guys. Right. Yeah. I, that that is a distinct difference. There's no question. The timeline's not a perfect match. Uh, this one came in, which I enjoy as well, from Locutus of Borg. I'll, always excited to get a text in from him. He says, so am I getting this right? Drance is saying that these playoffs show us that building a champion takes foresight and that the Canucks should set their team up for years to come with cost-efficient and reliable prospects, free agents, and stable well, And excavators and management. loaders. You yes. need to be able to clear the crease. Avenue machinery. <laughs> and excavators and stint Always, Always Stint-steers, a first-round pick. It. Always no a first-round pick. No doubt about <laughs> it. I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, I had something else I wanted to say there, but it's completely... That, that fantastic text has just completely derailed it <laughs> <laughs> from my mind. So, oh, the one thing I was going to say is... You know, for fans who are, as you said, we haven't seen a lot of movement in the player department, but I do think for fans that are hopeful for kind of a significant new direction for the team, if the appetite for on-ice player personnel movement and player personnel change is anything close to the appetite that Jim Rutherford, as as the president of hockey operations, has shown for off-ice moves in this organization, then I think you're going to be in luck, right? Because... It's all happened so rapidly, you can kind of lose track of just how much has changed uh, from a you know front office and behind the bench standpoint with this team. But Rutherford has not been shy whatsoever about putting his stamp on the organization from that perspective. So again, if you are hoping for those big on-ice changes, look, it remains to be seen exactly how much of that we will see going into next season. But again, Rutherford has not been shy about making changes off the ice. And to me, that's another kind of indicator that yeah, we could see some pretty big changes on the ice as well uh, this summer. Uh, We're going to take an early break here. As I teased off the top of the show, another European free agent, the Canucks added to their organization today, as promised by Patrick Alvin uh, when he took over. They're going to be trying to make more additions like that. We'll talk about the latest one uh, here from our producer, Chris Faber, and his early thoughts on the newest member of the Canucks organization. Don't forget to subscribe to the Canucks Hour podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please do leave us a five-star rating and review. More up next. You've got it on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to the Canucks Hour, Sportsnet 650. Jamie Dodd and my co-host, Canucks insider Thomas Drance, here with you. Canucks Hour brought to you by Avenue Machinery. Being a champion takes foresight. Build your company to win for years to come with fuel-efficient and reliable Kubota skid steers, excavators, and loaders from Avenue Machinery. AvenueMachinery.ca and Drancer, the questions are pouring in, are pouring in 650-650 to the Dunbar Lumber text line. The smart alternative, visit Dunbar Lumber on Bridge Street in Ladner or Arbutus in in Vancouver online at DunbarLumber.com. The questions are pouring in about uh, the newest member of the Canucks organization, Swedish right-handed defenseman. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He shoots right. Philip Johansson. Um, Interesting signing here in that he was a former 
first overall pick by Minnesota, pick 24th overall in 2018. But having said that, he was widely considered a pretty massive reach to go in the first round. It was a a kind of eyebrow-raising pick by Minnesota at the time, and perhaps related to that, now with some new people in charge in Minnesota, they declined to sign him. They get a compensatory second-round pick. It's not – this is not not our guy – Declined to sign him. Well, they get a compensatory second round pick. Well, they do, it. but it was it was such a landmine that that then first time at the draft table, GM Paul Fenton, whose director of amateur scouting was his brother JP Fenton, uh, sort of stepped on like a classic a classic tournament pick, right? Like you saw him good at the tournament, reached to draft him. Um, you know, Philip Johansson's done very little since, right? Like there's there was no question in the industry's mind that the second round pick was of yep. more value than what Johansson is. So that, that was a no brainer from Minnesota's perspective. Now this said, you can be a bad first round pick and a very sharp signing for a team as an unrestricted free agent, as a found money signing, like Johansson's a relatively, you know, he's not a big body, but he's a relatively broad kid, right? Right-handed shot, super rare uh, in terms of that. But I mean, he had like one point, in the Alsvenken in his draft year. Like, the whole industry was like, what is going yes. on? The moment they made that pick. And, you know, sort of ironically, probably a big part of why Judd Bracken is now in Minnesota uh-huh. is, is how that pick his went pick, down. Picks like that. Yeah, his picks, picks like that. So, um, you know, all of that said, for a team like the Canucks in a, you know, a so sorry, it was it was one point in 23 Alsvenken games five and 29 J 20 games. And he was a first round pick. There's no way Philip Johansson should have been a first round pick. Just had a, had a good tournament can skate. Well, maybe, maybe he's like a modern NHL five, six guy, right? One thing I hear about Johansson from my industry sources is, uh, that he's a really good kid, high character kid. Um, you know, average size and plays a pretty simple game moves. Well, though moves well, though. So sort of in that Tucker Pullman mold, but maybe a little shorter, uh, limited upside, right? Even his biggest boosters think like the best case scenario here is a new NHL 5-6. Lots of people think he's not going to get past the American League level based on just his overall upside. So he was never worth a first round pick. So we need to discuss this player, I think, without the baggage, the unfair baggage that comes from being overdrafted, yeah. right? He's not, he's not, a former first-round pick with what that implies. This is not like a high upside play. What this is, however, is a sharp found money move to sort of begin to bring additional talent in for a prospect pipeline that has far too little of it, particularly in this spot, right? I mean, Jonathan Myrenberg, Jet Wu, right? Philip Johansson, um, who, who else is on the right side? Like, you know, uh, Victor Person. Um, Hugo Gabrielson, right? I mean, if you get one depth NHL contributor from that group, that's a win. You're 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 like over the moon, right? Johansson's just another bullet in the chamber to help, you know, up your odds of maybe getting something from that group. But we're lucky we've got Faber in studio today, so let's let's turn it over because yeah. I know he's already crushed I, some I, video. I always picture whenever the Canucks make a signing like this, like Chris Faber, just like taking his punch guard and punching back in at the yeah, uh, exact exactly. factory. I'm like, all right, here I go again. So Faber, early returns for you on uh, on Johansson's tape. Yeah, I had to jump out of a Zoom call today at 10 <laughs> o'clock when they announced it to uh, dive into the tape. I mean, 
I liked what he did in the playoffs. He looked excellent in the playoffs. Had seven points in the SHL playoffs in nine games. Had a four-game goal streak. I mean, that's pretty damn impressive for a right-shot defenseman to do in the playoffs. And uh, Drance kind of brought it up. Like, there are definitely some things to like about watching just kind of like the highlights of him when he jumps into plays and brings a little bit of offense. There's a lot to like about his shot. He's right-handed. Looks like he can move pretty decent. He he doesn't look that big for six foot one, uh, but there are definitely some things like honestly like and you kind of brought it up, but like there there's not like I have to watch more tape for sure. But there is a possibility in my mind that he's now the best right D prospect in the system. Like, and, and that's wild to say. That's more on the system. So you think he's you think he's talent. you think he's lapped Myrenberg? I think Myrenberg. Yeah, I think he, he's probably a better player than Myrenberg right now. I think at the age. Yeah, I mean, there's a little bit. Myrenberg's like what two years younger. Yeah, but if you're looking at like closest to playing good hockey in the AHL, which is I think kind of the goal for right now with the Canucks' right D prospects, because I don't think there's a, a for sure NHLer there. But like, it wouldn't be it wouldn't surprise me at all next year to see him be the best right D prospect in the system playing in the AHL. Right, like, that Al- could be. Although a it does seem like he's going to spend next yes. year in Europe. Yes, yeah. this next season is yeah. what I'm saying. The year after that. Hopefully he can come over to the AHL. It'll be interesting to just watch him play. Like he should be a a good potential partner for Jack Rathbone if Rathbone's at development camp. Like that would be something maybe you'd like to see a little bit because at 22 years old, this guy is more more advanced than a lot of the Canucks prospects that we'll see at development camp. So there should be decently high expectations for him. He played a full season in the SHL where he was there wasn't any games. Like sometimes you see this with younger players that are specifically like 20 or 19 where. Yeah, they play some games like 14 minutes, but a lot of their games are like seven minutes of ice time. The The good thing uh, about Johansson is that every single game he played, like the lowest ice time he had all season long was like 13 minutes and 58 seconds. That's the lowest he played. So he's a very consistent SHL defense. Although although he's in his draft plus four season. I mean, in your draft plus four season as a defenseman, you should be pushing to make the NHL or you're very unlikely to make it. I mean, at that point, the odds begin to tail off significantly that you'll ever be impactful at the NHL, which is sort of the moment that even Jack Rathbone, far and away the Canucks' best prospect, right? But Jack Rathbone's kind of at that moment now. If he can't crack this roster right away, right, like beginning this next season, um, and if you don't know that he can crack the roster, you do have to consider monetizing him before he's viewed around the industry as, you know, TJ Brennan, right? Like that. that's sort of one of the crunches that you run up to uh, in terms of attrition rates, right? And and so Rathbone was a, what, 2017 pick. So he's only one year older than than Philip Johansson. And I'm talking about Rathbone that way. So what does that say about a guy who, yeah, good that he's playing SHL minutes, uh, but also don't sleep on Myrenberg. Chris Faber. <laughs> I do like Myrenberg too. I just, at this point, like. I think I think he's far and away, in the organization's estimation anyway, he's far and away at the top of their prospect pipeline on the right side. But as you said, quite rightly, more than anything, That's, that tells says you more about the system. A lot yeah. about where what Rutherford and Alvin are. Well, and it tells you more about why they're motivated to go out and sign a player like this, even though there's a bunch of red flags you could raise. Well, th- those are the types of guys who are typically available in situations like this, right? After Minnesota declined uh, to sign him, and it, when you're in the Canucks position, those are the types of guys you have to take flyers on. Just to uh, the contractual details, it's a two-year entry-level deal. As you said, Drancer, uh, Patrick Alvin said uh, that Johansson's going to play in Sweden with Frolunda next year, but they do expect him to be at uh, development camp out at UBC next month. So there you go. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this, and uh, we've just had a lot of 
people texted. I, I did enjoy this text as well that said, uh, to hell with that. This kid's winning the Calder, and he's Quinn's new running mate for the next 10 years. <laughs> so there you go. Dream big. Dream big, kids. Uh, That's but- a little too big. <laughs> a lot of texts Stranger have things in. have happened, though. I mean, in fairness. A lot of texts have come in saying, uh, along the lines of this one, I'll just read this one, unsigned. Can you guys explain the comp- compensatory second-round pick that the Wild received from today's transaction? What is this fancy rule I've never heard of? We've also had a couple of people texting in saying, hold on a second, are the Canucks giving a second-round no, pick? No, 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 no. No, so it's, it's not a, that. It's a second-round pick pulled out of thin air. You know, in other in other leagues, uh, MLB... It's, it's pretty common, the ML- NFL, yeah. yeah. In other leagues, when a player that you sign departs, or in other leagues, when free agents sometimes depart... Uh, there's a com- compensatory system in place where the team provides the the club that you know didn't sign them uh, with an additional with additional draft capital, and that draft capital is pulled out of thin air and just sort of exists at the back end of the second round. Now, for the NHL in 2013, they amended the rules on comp- compensatory picks and created a system whereby teams that draft first round players and then subsequently do not sign those players, get a compensatory second-round pick. Uh, we don't see it happen often. First-round picks get signed, almost always. Uh, the only other example I can think of uh, from the last eight years is uh, Connor Brickley, uh, who was drafted in the one pick ahead of Jared McCann um, You know, by the Avs. They, they didn't sign him. He ended up going back into the draft. The Avs got a compensatory pick, and then the... Uh, Coyotes, I think, redrafted him in the fifth round or something, and and obviously we haven't heard a ton from Connor Brickley. So, uh, you know, it, it's a very rare circumstance, but it does exist. I do think we could see in the years to come um, the compensatory system expanded in the NHL. I don't think you're going to see it expanded for other draft picks, but I do wonder if, you know, over time the league might try to give smaller market clubs a bit of a leg up, right? I mean, you think about teams like Winnipeg and Nashville that historically struggle to keep Mm -hmm. their free agents, their own free agents. And then you end up in this moment where are we going to go all in in their expiring year, right? Like, do you want your teams to feel the need to monetize their assets before they expire? Or should they have some level of protection whereby should a, you know, um, a, a Philip Forsberg leave, you don't necessarily have to trade right. him uh, before before he expires. But if if you don't, you'll get a second round pick. So at least you're a little bit protected from having to consider the types of moves that you know Vancouver will probably have to consider in this upcoming uh, this upcoming summer with guys like JT Miller and Bo Horvat. Should you offer teams some protection for when players depart in unrestricted free agency? I do think there's some smaller market teams that would favor that. I do think there's some smaller. Um, you know, some some ownership groups and smaller market teams that would love to see that. The NHL didn't really push to take additional protections of that of that order from the players in this latest round of CBA negotiations. It was far more concentrated on survival, yeah. the big picture through the pandemic, return to play. But I do wonder when the current CBA expires, if that, those are the t- sorts of menu items uh, we could well see on the, um, you know, radar of various negotiating committees uh, that the NHL puts yeah, forward. It's a good point that it would have to be a concession gain from the NHLPA, right? Because the, and this is something that happened a lot in Major League Baseball where it diminishes the value yeah, for the teams yeah, are like, 100%. well, we're not going to sign you because we're getting a really good draft picks. And then that drives down the market value of the players. And it really kind of snowballed out of control in baseball yep. in a way that I don't think it would in the NHL, but it is something that would require a little bit of give and take uh, between the league and the PA if they ever decided to go down that road. 
I want to talk about your article uh, with Harmon Dial up at The Athletic right now about some interesting sandpaper UFA candidates. Quickly, though, while we're on the subject of European free agents, of course, the headliner is Andre Kuzmenko. Darren Drager had an update earlier today saying, busy week for free agent Andre Kuzmenko. He's interviewing this week with Edmonton and Vancouver, as well as two U.S.-based clubs. And, and, and says, of course, you heard that he'd have a second interview with Vancouver yes. here first. There you go. Kuzmenko. I just want to chime in there. <laughs> Kuzme, you, oh, never mind. I was going to make a, a Vancouver media joke there, but I won't. Kuzmenko <laughs> is hoping to make his decision in the next 10 days. So there you go. Canucks Kuz, still Kuz, in the running. Kuzmenko is 10 days away from being another 10 days away, so that's our update for today. Look, <laughs> you know, the, the Canucks said that they would be aggressive in, in signing for agents. They didn't land any college UFAs or college FAs, but they did land Archdeep Baines out of the CHL. We've now seen them dip into Europe and sign um, Niels Amon, uh, Niels Oman, excuse me, and now and now Philip Johansson. Johansson. And Kuzmenko would obviously be the crown jewel in that pursuit. I mean, that would be a really it, big deal. You land him, and all of a sudden, that's a really good found money class in, in your first six months. I mean, of the it's, help. it's it's robust for sure. And, yeah. and there's still some guys that I that I'd be curious to see them target, particularly like you know one guy I think about, and and this will transition us to talking about the sandpaper thing. Like one guy I always think about, and there's really two, but one that one guy's Corbin Knight, who was a assistant captain with Team Canada at the Olympics in Beijing recently. But, you know, he's a guy who wins like 60% of his draws in the KHL. The last time we saw him in the NHL with the Panthers and the Calgary Flames organizations, he was, you know, one of those like 26-year-old guys who couldn't quite score enough and hadn't figured out the defensive game. Mm -hmm. Goes over to Europe. He now wins like 60% of draws. He's right-handed. We know how desperately the Canucks need a right-handed face-off guy. He's from Oliver, British Columbia. Uh, great spot. Love visiting Oliver in the summer. Great wine. Beautiful. And, you know, that's the sort of additional heft you could potentially bring, especially if some North American players decide they don't really want to play in the KHL with everything that's going on in Russia. Uh, you know, that's sort of an, that class of guy, like that guy, that that Derek Ryan style flyer on a guy who could help you, not a prospect, but a guy who could help you. I'd love to see their class include another body like that, regardless of whether or not they land Kuzmenko, because obviously Kuzmenko would also qualify under that rubric. Um, I think there's some interesting names. Uh, Solarik's another one, although the Boston Bruins still own his rights. You could easily, easily acquire them for for nothing. Uh, that would be another guy who I'd be curious to see. He's a you know bona fide AHL scoring stud who who I think has some NHL game if he can uh, if you can get enough out of him to keep him competitive game to game. Sandpaper. Jim Rutherford said he wants it. Yep. We know that this team needs to help Luke Shen in the alleys. So before we get into the kind of the nitty gritty of the list of guys um, who could be available, I, I did have to admit it was pretty funny. You know, I read the article and I scroll down to the comment section at The Athletic and there's this kind of immediate reaction, I think, in a lot of, you know, smart hockey fan circles, but especially here in Vancouver, when you start talking about buying sandpaper on the UFA market, there's this kind of shiver that goes up the spine of a lot of Canucks fans. And this panic starts to set in. And it's, no, why are you doing this? Why why on earth would we do this? And I understand that because we've seen how, you know, the, the search for bottom six grit and stuff has gone so, so wrong uh, at UFA time for this team. But I do think we also have to, and I think your article does a good job of doing this, we kind of have to reconceptualize what those, you know, I don't even want to say intangible because a lot of the stuff they do is tangible, but those sandpaper characteristics mean. And I think we have to understand, we have to be able to separate, 
you know, what's real, functional, grit, whatever you want to call it, that helps teams win versus the kind of, wow, that guy's trying really hard out there and he's throwing his body around to block shots, but ultimately not not, not absolutely or not necessarily moving the needle a bit, right? Because I think we tend to always think, oh, this they're signing this guy for sandpaper. That's a mistake. You know, go after the high skill guy. But there are players who fit that mold. I mean, just look at some of the the guys farther down the roster just, in the two cup final teams. Just right? look at just look at Luke Shen. Yeah, right. Luke Shen's value is significantly tied up in the yeoman's work that he can bring to a team. But at seven hundred fifty k times two, like that's one of the Canucks' best free agent signings of the last five years. Right. I mean, you you do have to find the marriage of value and utility, and and I think we did. I mean, this list does include some higher end players, right? So we we did put Andrew Kopp on the list. Uh, we didn't put Nazem Kadri on the list, although I really wouldn't be surprised if he hits unrestricted free agency and if the Canucks were to sell some other pieces for his name to be linked to to the Canucks. Like I, that wouldn't shock me. Um, obviously, a, a variety of dominoes would yeah. have to fall first because he, he's going to be a seven and a half million dollar player minimum. Even with the Andrew Cop scenario, you're talking about a lot of other even things with happening the Andrew Kopp, before that and, gets and to honestly, a reality. Even with the Mason Marchment. Scenario, yeah. right? Mason Marchman's probably a three and a half, four million dollar uh, dollar player at least. I mean, the guy almost had fifty points this year. So you know, all three of those guys are guys who are on this list, but guys who are on this list who things would need to occur first for the Canucks to to get into the bidding. Um, or sorry, not all three guys. Yeah, no, all, two of two of the two three, of the three two of the three are on this list. Kadri would be a you know I don't know honorable mention or something. Yeah, like yeah. That, well, but, yeah. I, we didn't include him because it's it's you you'd. You know, you have to telegraph so much of what the Canucks would do first. They'd really have to clear fifteen million in cap space, which you know I could see it, but it's not um, something I'm going to prepare for in a very serious way by including Kadri on this list. Now, the other guys, though, as we move down the list, these are guys who I think actually could be you know value signings. We have reclamation projects, guys like Nola Chari on this list. Mm-hmm. We have and and the right-handed centerman thing I think can't be ignored here, right? If you go back into the season with Miller, Horvat, and Pedersen, mm-hmm. and and presumably Yuho Lamico, yeah, and uh, potentially Jason Dickinson, and potentially Jason Dickinson, like all lefties, five lefties, you do need a right-handed guy, and ideally a right-handed guy who can play some penalty kill for you, which is why Nolachari is a reclamation project, or Curtis Lazar, a BC kid, would be guys that would sort of fit that bill, just bring another wrinkle into what the Canucks could do and and potentially be upgrades over over Yuho Lamico. I, I thought Yuho Lamico was a tremendous contributor. I thought he showed a lot of growth over the course of the season. I'm probably prepared to see him play an everyday role for this team on the fourth line. I think he'd be an upgrade over a lot of what the Canucks have rolled out over the years at, at fourth line center. And yet, I don't have a problem with them bringing in some competition at the right price to push him. Uh, particularly if that competition is right-handed, mm-hmm. and and Lazar in particular would be would be a guy who makes sense to me in my mind's eye, a guy who's you know uh, had the classic burned out as a, a high pedigree first round pick, but sort of as a reclamation project in Buffalo, found his game, yeah, found a way to stick in the league and right. provide value and make him desirable to teams, even though he didn't you know live up to the, yeah. the billing of his first round. Well, draft he's status. not going to be two million dollars a year, right? He but he's also not going to be eight hundred k. Right, he's going to be in that sort of middle range, and, and you know maybe at a three-year, you know something, one one something sort of million-dollar contract, he could provide some value for you. Um, you know that that's the type of contract that I could really see the Canucks strongly considering. But I got to say, and it's hard to know because Lazar came available to Buffalo after he was left non-tendered. Right, he mm-hmm. wasn't qualified. 
So at the at the same time that I think Lazar can make sense as a target for the Canucks, right? A, a pest player, really good on the forecheck, which I think would be a tremendous fit with how Bruce Boudreau plays, and a guy who can do all of that, be in your face without taking penalties. I mean, that's that's a big part of Lazar's value, right? He's in the mix all the time, and yet he's not in the box very often. Yeah. That's that's an attractive profile. If you know, while while I think that could make sense for Vancouver, one thing that always sticks in my sort of craw is as much as you might desire that player, what you really want is to find the next Lazar. What you really want is to find Lazar minus three years so that you get him at 900K yeah. as he's on that come up. And that's why sort of Nolachari is on the list because I dealt with an injury in preseason, cost him four and a half months of the season, dealt with another injury. Achari is one of those fourth liners who scores at a rate far better than what you'd expect from a fourth liner. Uh, he's a legit face-off ace. Um, you know, that to me is sort of like, if you want to find the 800 K version of that, that's, that's the option, which is why we spot. Well, and just also on your point about, uh, Curtis Lazar, he was a non-tender guy, right? Now this year could see another interesting crop of non-tender players. Well, I mean, you know, one guy, one guy who I honestly would keep my eye on is a guy who has been linked to the Canucks, uh, over the course of the past six months. And that's Pavel Zaka. Like Pavel Zaka is going to cost almost two and a half million. Mm Mm-hmm to qualify for the New Jersey Devils who have a lot of needs and a lot of pressure on them to win now? Like, are they going to spend their cap space that way? Or is that a guy who could shake loose and be available to the Canucks on one of those, you know, Nick Ritchie style contracts? You know, it might might not be a freebie. You're probably not getting him for 800K either, but certainly could be a... Getting him on a value. UFA. And there could be a lot of guys like that that, that shake loose at some point this yeah. summer. Well, and then, we, and then we have Nico Sturm, who's sort of the other uh, key centerman. Um, you know, physical style, uh, really good, really good sort of overall impact. Uh, and, and he's uh, six foot three and he's unfortunately not right-handed. Johan Larson is sort of the other guy yes. who's unfortunately not right-handed, but who I like a lot. And if the Canucks do make some significant changes and are looking for, uh, you know, guys who can step in to be maybe more than fourth line centers, right? Cause that's not a role that I'd necessarily, um, ride for Lazar or Achari filling, you know, Johan Larson or um, Nico Sturm would be guys who could maybe fit the bill. So they're on our list. We've got Maxim Mammon, who's just like, a, I have to name check him at every moment. <laughs> Your guy, Maxim Mammon. Plus skating, six foot two, 220 pound brick house, Russian speaker, right? I have this vision of Mammon, you know, doing his puck protection game down low and just like running through guys. He's like a legitimately scary human being. With uh, on a line with Vasily Podkolzin yes. on like an energy line with Vasily Podkolzin, and I just have this idea of this Russian Bash Brothers line that I just I find it charming. I want it. I just genuinely want to watch it. I want to cover it. I ride for Maxim Mammon for that reason. Also, he's legitimately good. He's an unrestricted free agent. He's not going to break the bank, and I think there could be more offensive ceiling than he's shown in Florida. It, Actually, I mean, I think he showed some of it yeah. this past season, but I think there's there could be more there. If, if the Canucks sign uh, Maxim Mann, we're getting the first interview. Uh, I'll tell you that oh, much. I mean, <laughs> I hope his English has improved a lot since I last worked with him. Uh, just quickly before we get out of here, if I had to bat player on your list, and everyone should go check out the article in The Athletic, most likely to sign with the Canucks this year, I think I would put my money down on Zach Aston Reese. And, you know, it's it's so easy to do that. Oh, well, he played for Jim Rutherford in Pittsburgh. But, yeah, he played for Jim Rutherford in Pittsburgh, and he fits so much. 
of what we've heard from Jim Rutherford and what we know he likes to build in the bottom six of that speedy winger who's good on the forecheck, who has a really high work rate. He checks he checks so many boxes. And yeah, if I had to place my money down on one guy from the sandpaper shopping list you have uh, up at the Athletic, I would keep an eye on Zach Aston Reese, who I think would be a really, really good fit here. Uh, for the Vancouver Canucks. That is going to do it for us today. Thanks to everyone who listened. Thanks to everyone who texted in. We will be back tomorrow with another edition of Canucks Hour, the People Show, Bick Nazar, Randy Janda. It's up next on the home of the Canucks, Sportsnet 650.